Our second reading is from the book of Galatians, chapters 3 and 4. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, a court through God. The word of the Lord. If I were to look back over my life, there are various periods when I ask the question, who am I? I specifically remember one that I think, I think was somewhere in the 10th grade. And it was a question of who am I that was a question of identity because I didn't like who I was at that moment. And it amounted to something like this. Um, by 10th grade, you've sort of established your patterns. You have a little bit of a reputation. You're known amongst your friends and peers for certain things. And I was loud, strong personality, always the first to talk and to control any group. Meanwhile, friends of mine were quiet, philosophical, mysterious. I wanted to be like them, not just because they always got the girl, but because they seemed cooler in some way, and I just couldn't be cool like that. So I determined at one point, I'm going to change who I am. I think it lasted till lunch, but at least for one day, I was quiet for like three periods of the class. We go through these changes in our life. I, I'm sure some of you guys have dealt with something like this. If you, if you look back over the course of your lifetime or even over the course of the past week, your identity fluctuates. The question, who am I? What am I doing? This happens anytime you enter a new season of life. All of a sudden, you have kids and you never had them, or now you're an empty nester. And after 25 or 30 years of raising kids in your home, they're gone and you lose your moorings. Who am I? This happens in dramatic changes, in, in crises, like the loss of a job, or worse, the loss of a spouse or a child. When everything that, that was who you were all of a sudden is, is broken, you almost have to start from scratch and say, who am I? Sometimes it's just the trajectory of life. You get to a certain point, and you think, this isn't where I thought I would be at this age. What has my life meant up to this point? Who am I? This is the sort of question we ask a lot in here because it's a primary philosophical question that people in the modern world are asking. But it goes with a couple of other questions that I want us to look at. It's the question of identity, status, and destiny. Identity is the question of 
who am I? It's your self-understanding, your self-worth, the one that I was just talking about. A second that actually goes with it is your status. It's how do I fit in? This is a primary question that you ask when you're in 10th grade, but it continues when you're older. It's what is your social standing, your value? And then destiny, which is a word I don't really like, but basically I'm looking for purpose and aim and direction. Where are my hopes and my future? Where am I going in life? Where or in what we find these affects our view of ourself, our view of others, and our approach in life. The gospel that we talk about a lot in here says, here's your starting point for each of these. You are a child of God. You are loved, forgiven, and saved by grace, not because of anything you've done, and you are destined for eternity. That should be your starting point and your finish point for all of those questions. In Galatians, Paul is addressing some of these basic issues as he's talking to Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Here's the basic story of what happened. Paul went to preach the gospel in Galatia, a Greek city-state area. People came to faith in Christ, but they were all Gentiles. Sometime later, after Paul had left, Jewish believers entered. And when they came in and found out all these Gentiles were there that were Christians, they said, oh, great, you only need one more thing. You need to be circumcised. Now, for many reasons, the Gentile believers were hesitant. And it wasn't just because they liked lobster. They wanted to say, wait a minute, do we really need to become Jewish? Paul wrote this letter saying, you do not need to be circumcised. You do not need to become Jewish to be saved. So why was this a big deal? Because from the beginnings of the people of God, the chosen people were the Jewish people. From Abraham on, God chose those people as the way that he was going to reveal himself to the world. And so these Jewish believers came along and said, well, certainly you must be one of us to enter. Not only that, you have to do works of the law, like circumcision and a few other things. But Paul, Paul writes at the beginning of Galatians that we didn't read, any addition to the gospel... Anything besides faith in Christ alone means you no longer have the gospel. If it's Jesus plus anything, you've gotten rid of everything. And so he gets to his big idea in verse 26 of chapter 3 when he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And he's talking to Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, you are a son of God through faith. We'll come back to that, but then he gets to another statement that that surrounds this same one when he says, for in Christ, this is verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is identifying three categories of divergence, Jew and Greek. Now, from a Jewish perspective, the world was divided between Jew and Greek. It was the chosen people who were circumcised and the uncircumcised. So Paul just goes ahead and jumps into that category of of dividing people. Then he jumps into the second category of free or slave, which were the, the highest and lowest point you could be in the social hierarchy of that stratified world. 
At the very top was a male Roman citizen who owned land, and at the very bottom was a foreign slave who had no rights. And then he goes to male and female. The basic distinction from Genesis 1.27 that he is, he is quoting of how we are born as either male or female, and he's talking about it in a culture that was patriarchal, that existed on the basis of primogeniture, basically the only way that you inherited anything was you were a man, and the only way you had rights was being associated with a man. You had to have a husband or a father, or you had no protection. Paul is speaking into all of these categories of division. He's addressing the primary ethnic, social, and gender distinctions. And you have to understand that way more than we could possibly understand today, the ancient world was socially stratified and completely fixed. It was what we would call today a caste system that you couldn't get out of. Your status and your future were determined by your birth. One uh, ancient philosopher a couple hundred years before Jesus, and the rabbinic writings a couple hundred years after, identified this thanksgiving that, that those in power might have said. Thales, who this quote is sometimes given to him, sometimes to Socrates or Plato, he thanks fortune, a very Greek philosopher way of thanking God, he thanks fortune that I was born first a human and not an animal, second a man and not a woman, third Greek and not a barbarian. And then from the rabbinic writings, a prayer of thanksgiving a couple hundred years after Jesus, blessed be he, God, the Father, blessed be he, Yahweh, that he did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In first century Judaism, being on the wrong side of all of these divisions kept people out and apart from God. But in Galatians, Paul preaches a gospel of grace that all have access to God through faith in Christ. And he starts with a great equalizer. He doesn't say that women and Gentiles and slaves are out. He says, everyone is out. All of you are out and apart from God. Everyone is out, but he says anyone can get in by faith through grace. Not your birth, not deeds that you have done, only through Christ crucified. But through Christ crucified, anyone can come in. You see, the kingdom of God, as it came in with Jesus, had transforming power and salvation that was all of a sudden pushing out and being available to all. There's two great narrative passages in, in the New Testament that if you want to go read these on your own, you can see them where the gospel and the power of God is going forth to everyone. In Luke chapter 8, there's the second half of Luke chapter 8, Jesus is going on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the Gentile side. And what does he meet there? He meets a naked, demon-possessed Gentile. That's about as far from good as you can get. Jesus confronts the, the legion of demons and casts them out, and the man is restored to his family. 
restored to his right mind and healed. Jesus then crosses over the Sea of Galilee, and basically within a day or so, he's walking through the city when a religious leader, a Jewish ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, comes to him and says, Jesus, come to my home. My daughter is sick. Heal her. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, this male Jewish authority, when a woman who is unnamed, which means she's not to be even known, touches Jesus' cloak from behind. Jesus stops and says, power has gone out of me. And the woman confesses that she had touched Jesus because she had been sick for years, and she just wanted to be healed. And Jesus, right then and there, in front of everyone, embarrasses her, but he's restoring her, saying, she is healed. She is no longer unclean. Welcome her back. Then Jesus continues on to Jairus' house, and the daughter is now dead, and he raises her from the dead. And in a 24-hour period, Jesus, by the power of God, has confronted the demon-possessed Gentile man, the Jewish male ruler, and an unknown woman who is sick and unclean. The gospel and the power of God is available to everyone in every caste, in or out, according to our culture. The same thing, basically the same thing happens in Acts chapter 16. This is when the gospel goes to Europe for the first time. Paul and Silas with Timothy go to Philippi, which was in Macedonia, Greece. And as they enter, the thing that Paul normally did was go to a synagogue to preach to the Jews there. But there was no synagogue, presumably, in Philippi because there weren't enough men to make a synagogue. So there was a prayer gathering on the outskirts of town, and Paul goes and preaches there, and a woman, a Jewish woman named Lydia, who was rich, comes to faith in Christ, and she and her whole family are baptized. Then Paul and Silas begin preaching in the city of Philippi, and they begin getting followed around by this fortune-telling slave girl who is demon-possessed. After a couple of days being followed by this fortune-telling slave girl, Paul turns and confronts and casts out the demon, and she becomes a follower. But at that moment, the slave owners are very upset. Hey, they used her for fortune-telling, and now she doesn't have demons to tell the future, so what are we going to do? They arrest Paul and Silas, who are thrown in jail after being beaten severely. And in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are singing hymns. An earthquake happens. The bars of the, of the prison are open, but instead of leaving, Paul and Silas stay there. The Philippian jailer, who was responsible for making sure they stayed in jail, is about to kill himself because he knows if the prisoners escape, he's going to be killed anyhow. He's about to kill himself. Paul and Silas say, stop, we're still here. He rushes in, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Repent and put your faith in Jesus. He and his whole family are baptized that night. So what has just happened in a couple-day period? A rich Jewish woman a demon-possessed Gentile slave girl, and a male authority with Roman citizenship all come to faith in Christ. In a culture that was incredibly stratified, where your birth determined your identity, your status, and your destiny, the gospel comes in like a powerful earthquake and overturns everything. It radically upended culturally assumed divisions. What Paul is talking about in Galatians 3, 28, 
is that no longer is identity and status determined by birth, but rather by rebirth. There's a new social order established because of Christ in which the distinctions of race, class, and gender are no longer in play. Now in Christ Jesus, all of us are on the same footing. The new in Christ order allows equal access to the weak, the outsider, and the subordinate. It's not, it's not, Paul is not saying that ethnic or socioeconomic or gender distinctions don't exist. It's that they are rendered irrelevant when it comes to God and to the salvation that he offers. And yet the salvation that God offers remains exclusive. As Paul is very clear, one is either in Christ or apart from Christ on the basis of faith. Basically, Paul says, all people need Christ, but any person can have Christ. And all baptized believers are equally and fully in the family of God. We are one in Christ. Think about how that gospel message sounded if you were on the wrong side of every division in that first century world. You hear this gospel message, and you are poor, or foreign-born, or an orphan, or a widow, or a slave. The gospel offered a kind of identity and status and future that was filled with hope and assurance. It was life to you. And I would say the same is true if you come in today feeling like you don't measure up. You may not be on the wrong side by birth, but you may not just stack up to all the measures of success in our culture today. The gospel of grace is a great equalizer. The gospel was and remains counter to our intuitive and cultural tendencies. Luke Ferry, an atheist French philosopher writing on the history of modern thought, notes the radical push that Christianity provided for the Western world. The Greek world, he writes, was fundamentally an aristocratic world, a universe organized as a hierarchy in which those most endowed by nature should, in principle, be at the top, while the less endowed saw themselves occupying inferior ranks. In direct contradiction, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. Luke Ferry is not a Christian apologist, okay? He's an atheist. Ferry goes on to talk about how Christianity leveled humanity and elevated individuals. You see, Christianity built on that Jewish understanding that we are made in the image of God, meaning every person ever conceived has equal and invaluable dignity. But Christianity also took it a step further by saying we are saved by grace. Every one of us is equally sinful, so we're all on equal ground there, and every one of us is saved by grace. None of us are better than the other. So neither birth 
nor how good you are, how great you are, how successful you are make you better. The gospel came in and said all are equal in Christ. The gospel also, and Christianity also, elevated the individual. In a culture where everything was done corporately, Jesus comes in and says, you need to repent and believe. You need to turn to me and follow me. Paul comes along and says, the Spirit is available to you. In the previous ages, it was believed that God dwelt in a temple for people. But after Pentecost, God dwells in you individually. You are a temple, a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And you and I will inherit eternal life or face judgment. See, Christianity both leveled humanity and elevated the individual. And this undergirds historically undergirds our modern values of individual liberty and human rights. You know, we are a culture that values individual liberty and human rights, and this is a good thing. I don't want to live in a culture that doesn't value those things. But even those are becoming shakier because we've lost the original foundation on which they stood. Think about it. Liberty and rights are now defined as doing something. I should be able to do whatever I want, or else I do not have liberty. And I should be able to do the same as you, or else I don't have rights. When you start defining liberty on the basis of something you do, rather than on being created in the image of God, which has been thrown out, there's no longer inherent human dignity some people are going to be lesser down on the scale. And because we, as our modern culture, ignores a gospel of grace, and we're a merit and performance-based society. That's just how we operate. We identify certain things that enable you to be more valuable. It's not in our culture that your identity, your status, and your destiny are fixed by birth. We would say anyone can become anything. But then we set a merit-based bar that says something like this. You could, you could, even if you start down here, you could one day be talented, successful, rich, beautiful, athletic, intelligent. You know, easy bars. And if you can nail two out of those six, you feel all right about yourself. But if you're 0 for 6, if you don't measure up athletically, intellectually, in beauty, in success, in wealth, in talent, where does that leave you? See, the problem is that modern equality in human rights is now being built on a shakier and shakier foundation, where even rights are going to be subject to the tyranny of whoever's in power or the view of the, of the group think. We're left subject to things that are going to change. Whoever's in power or what majority says rules. And it pulls the foundation out from inherent equality. And in our modern society, 
we devalue those who can't measure up. Those who are the most fragile, the aging, the disabled, those who don't measure up, the addicted, the uneducated, the unattractive, the poor, the list could go on. You may not be fixed in your status. You just have to be successful, and then everything's going to be okay. The gospel is wholly different. In Galatians 3.26, Paul says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God through faith. Now, I want to hit on these two words, these two word phrases, sons of God and faith. The first is sons of God, which on one level was a term that was reserved for the Jewish people only. Paul comes in and co-ops that and says, anyone, Jew or Gentile, who has faith in Christ is now a son of God. And on top of that, he keeps the terminology son. And why is that important? Because in that ancient world, only a son could inherit land. Only a son could have the status and rights of the Father. Paul is saying in the gospel, everything that is God's is yours, whether you are a male or a female. You have the same inheritance, female or male. You have the same inheritance, Gentile or Jew, slave or free. It's all yours in Christ. There is no second-class citizenry when it comes to the kingdom of God. And that gospel is through faith. All that God offers is through faith. And this is particularly hard for us. Let let me remind us we are a merit-based, performance-oriented culture. We still think we have to be good. So let me ask, are you a friendly neighbor a kind father and husband, and respected at work. Great. But what matters is do you have faith in Christ? And is your faith in Christ only? Or is it in Christ plus you're a kind father? In Christ plus you go to church? In Christ plus you're pretty generous with your money? Christ and Christ alone, through faith in Him. And the opposite is also true. Are you a jerk? Have you ruined your family? Do you struggle with vices? Is your past filled with shame? That's not so great. But what matters is if you put your trust in Christ. If you put your trust in Jesus, There is no condemnation for you. You are a new creation. It's not the good and successful who are in and the bad and failures and immoral and religious who are out. In the gospel's view, as Tim Keller puts it, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. In the first century, Paul needed to say, your status isn't based on your birth, but on rebirth through faith in Jesus. Today, I think if Paul was writing the same letter to us, he would say your identity and your worth is on the basis of Christ's performance, not yours. 
Salvation is a gift received by faith. It's not an achievement earned. It's not because you're good. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it even more clear. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God, not by our works, so that no one can boast. This is the gospel of grace. And there are implications. There are implications with the gospel of grace. And one of the challenges as a Christian is to work it out, to figure out how this gospel of grace can affect my approach to everything. You see, the gospel should affect how I view myself, that I am a loved child of God and heir of eternity. In Galatians 3.27, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That put on Christ language means you're wearing Christ. Now, the reason why that's important is because, much like today, what you wear represents sort of the culture in which you run, the subculture in which you run, but in that day and age, it actually identified your status in the community. A slave wore certain clothes. A free Roman citizen wore others. A Jewish person wore others. Women and men differentiated themselves by the clothes they wore. If you were the prince who would one day become king, you wore certain clothes that everyone would know, oh, you're going to be king. You will inherit the throne. What Paul is saying is if your faith is in Christ, the clothes you wear are Christ, meaning your status, your identity, the way God views you is the same as he views Jesus, his son. When the Father sees me, he sees Jesus. I don't look like Jesus. I don't act like Jesus. But when God sees me, he sees his Son. So I need to daily find my identity, my status, and my future in Jesus, not in success or approval or anything else, just in Jesus. The gospel affects how I view myself. It also, also should affect how I view others. Remember, the gospel said all are out with God and all need grace to come in. Basically, the gospel says this, we all equally stink. We all equally need Jesus. And Jesus died for every stinker. That should humble us and cause us to not only have no place for racism, bigotry, hate, but actually not even a place for condescension or disdain. And here I want each of us to pause and self-identify. You may not be racist, bigoted, and hateful, but my guess is you and I, if you're like me, if you're a human, you are condescending and disdainful towards somebody or some people. The phrase I like to use is, he has a punchable face. There are certain people that I would like to just punch. Usually it comes up in sporting events, like there's a certain basketball player who plays for a college down in Durham that is a little too... I'm not talking about that sort of silly thing, which is not really that silly, actually. It's, there's issues there, but... What I mean is, is there anybody in your life, family member, worker, neighbor, that you would just like to get rid of? 
or in our society? Or is there a type of person who represents a certain cause that you would just like to see punched? I am deeply afraid that our current political and social climate means that every one of us is trying to punch before we get punched. What did Jesus say? When you get punched on the one cheek, turn the other? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I think this calls us to confession, to take time to confess the people that we disdain, to pray for them, and to remember why Christ died for you. He didn't die for you because you're awesome. He died because you're a sinner, and He loves you anyhow. He calls us to love others the same. The gospel affects how I view myself, how I view others, and it should affect, lastly, how I live, how I determine what's important. The gospel calls me to look to God and not my feelings, not the culture, not the prevailing winds, not what everyone knows. My primary identity and allegiance is always to Jesus Christ and His kingdom, not to my success, not to my preferences, not to my tribe. In other words, my primary identity and allegiance should not be to my citizenship, my political affiliation, my race, my gender, my education level, my socioeconomic status, or the neighborhood in which I live. It is not God, family, country. It is Jesus. It's just Jesus. Bottom line is in Christ Jesus, any of us may become sons of God, regardless of race, class, or gender. Your goodness doesn't help you get in, but your badness doesn't keep you out. Anyone, 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 even you, even me, who repents, admits that we are sinners, and believes in Jesus and Jesus alone, is equally a child of God, an heir of eternity, clothed in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came that we might have life. You loved us so much that you came and died in our place. That is a gospel of grace to the unlovely and the unlovable, even us. Transform us by your Spirit that we might view ourselves, others, the world around us, and how we live on the basis of the gospel of grace, on the basis of Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen.